for taking the time to listen to today's episode. As you know, the current crisis in Myanmar is extremely concerning, and we appreciate that you're taking the time to be informed about what's happening. There's value even in just becoming aware and helping to inform others. So please consider sharing this episode so that more people may learn about what is really happening in the country, as it's critical to ensure that this issue remains present in the public discourse. For now, let's get on to the interview that follows. ยังกองนทาวน์ตะเซมองยุบไปยีตาดิตาตะมีเมียอีปิญญาเยปอมีบ่ออุทิ้งตุมีชิ้นๆเปลี่ยนใส่หมู่เมียရှိลาดิโก
Those about to leave for jobs overseas need to systematically prep themselves in every possible way before departure, it's been observed. Documents and certificates are forged. Bogus offices are set up to con the people, it's been observed. The anti-plastic ecological campaign has not really caught on among the general populace, it's been observed. To minimize the risk of molestation on public transport, most ladies now choose pub special bus services, it's been observed. The unemployment rate is on the increase and salaries are on the decrease. Compared to last year, this has put migrant workers from rural areas in reverse immigration, it's been observed. Movies that feature pleasant backdrops with an array of actors and comedies that poke fun of people tripping over, falling face down in the cow dung are increasingly popular among the Yangon film buffs, it's been observed. was like 17 looking at universities uh i went and did like an overnight admitted students day at american university and i remember everybody on the floor was talking about how somebody from the floor that i was staying at was at this giant protest in quebec city like those were the days of the you know anti-corporate globalization movement the globalization from below and things like that. Um, and you know, the, the massive protests in Seattle had just happened in 99. I think this was year 2001. Um, and so I came and I chose American University for that reason. Like, you know, expecting to get involved in the, the anti-corporate globalization movement. Like I came from a strong union family. Uh, I grew up like knowing that sort of the Democrats and the Republicans had all kind of turned on unions during the 1990s and, you know, these are ideas that that's sort of like globalization and like a worker-led globalization has always been a center of my thinking. Um, and so at the time I was reading a book called No Logo, um, which is sort of a Bible of that kind of anti-corporate globalization movement. Um, and I got picked to go to a conference in Boston and there was a number of people quoted in No Logo, uh, one of them being Dr. Sein Nguyen, uh, who is, uh, still lives here in Twinbrook, but um, is famous for having done sort of a, a peace treaty between the um, uh, ABSDF and uh, the, the, I don't know if the peace treaty is the right word, but he, he, he negotiated between the Karen and the um, 
the, the, the students and et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so I, I was learning about Burma from this book, No Logo, uh, and I was learning about the divestment movements around uh, Burma. And at this conference that Oxfam International put on, sitting right there in front of me was Simon Billiness, who uh, currently is, is one of my bosses. I have maybe too many jobs. Um, and he uh, was, was right there, and he was talking about the, anti, the sort of divestment movement around Burma, and I was like, oh, wow, like, this is that guy from No Logo. Um, and that piqued my curiosity. And then when I got back for my sophomore year, uh, there was a trip to uh, Thailand and Burma that someone had organized. Um, so I did an alternative winter break there. And I just remember meeting all these people from the Thai-Burma border. And they all said, you know, and of course, we ask all of them, like, what do you want us to do for you? And they're all like, get U.S. companies to stop doing business with the junta. And so I returned back to, to AU and myself with the Free Burma Coalition, you know, myself and a few other students at AU worked with Free Burma Coalition to develop this uh, campaign to get May's department store, which owned, at the time owned its major conglomerate, owned Hex, Lord & Taylor, David Bridal, um, really, really massive company to stop sourcing from Burma. And, uh, you know, after a couple of um, months, really, like, the company agreed to pull out, you know, they, like, made legally binding statements. And then all of a sudden, you know, I was, like, an incredibly awkward 19-year-old that, like, nobody had ever been afraid of and no one would rationally be afraid of. But then, like, this, like, massive, like, multinational corporation was afraid of me uh, and, and listened to this campaign that I made. And I was like, holy shit, like, this is real. And this is, like, a place that, like, these sort of ideas about, you know, globalization from below and, like, international, you know, capital has its international and the workers need our own international. Um, and it just became, like, very real. Uh, and, it, and it just seemed like a, the right place to contribute. And so I really spent a lot of my college years and, and I did a master straight out of undergraduate, like, you know, focused on Burma, or at least working on things related to Burma. And uh, when I graduated, I got hired at U.S. Campaign for Burma and, and worked there for a few years uh, doing their kind of congressional work. So uh, that's sort of the long and the short of how I got uh, involved in, in Burma and Burma-related policy. Yeah, so it sounds like your background and interest in Burma was kind of this combination of personal experience as a, a young um, backpacker internship um, when you were when you actually went to the country and met people, combined with some of these policy policies and advocacies that were interested in, interesting to you at the time. That it all kind of came together in one place, and that set you on your path to what you've been doing since. Is, is that right? Right. Yeah, ab absolutely. Right. And so after you had that experience of being this, as you said, awkward 19-year-old that was able to realize that you could actually do things that would have effect against a large multinational affecting many more people and harming many more people that you were able to take an action that was able to limit or prevent this harm, uh, you mentioned you went on to be involved in other ways in, in Burma. Your interest stayed there as you continued on looking at other topics and research areas and advocacy. What, what exactly did you do uh, in the years following that? Totally, yeah. So, um, you know, at, at, after we did all these sort of divestment campaigns, the U.S. eventually had an import ban from Burma. So there was no 
sense in continuing with the, the divestment work. Um, and so we, uh, at U.S. Campaign for Burma, I did this sort of congressional advocacy, meaning I spent a lot of time on the phone and the internet telling people to call their member of Congress to support particular legislation related to Burma. Um, and, you know, that I did for a few years. Uh, things in Burma began to change, though, 2011, and, and our focus really changed. When I first got involved, I conceptualized it as, like, the same as sort of the anti-apartheid movement, where you have this sort of uh, global solidarity around what's happening in Myanmar. Um, that's how No Logo framed it. That's how I understood it. Then things began to, ch to change to sort of like an anti-war crime uh, uh, framework, which I think is fine, but it just didn't exactly like, like doesn't quite speak to my politics in the same way. Um, particularly because like solidarity is being in solidarity with people, a particular group of people. Um, and it's, it's a little bit more concrete. You're like in solidarity with like flawed people because all people are flawed. Whereas like the sort of like anti-war crime uh, uh, approach, I think it's, it's, it's an abstraction, right? Like the ABSDF has war crimes, like the Tavendal has war crimes, then, you know, all, every, you know, so it just didn't make a lot of sense to me. And, and the hypocrisy of it, like given the horrible kind of crimes the U.S. has been involved in, at that time, especially I was still in my twenties, like really bothered me. I didn't want to be that kind of like hypocrite. So I, um, these days maybe I'm like less concerned about that particular thing, but I, uh, at the time really bothered me. So, you know, I left, uh, uh, Burma work for a while and went to live in, in China. And I, and when I lived there, I would always visit Burma and I, I led some trips from like, uh, particularly from Shenzhen to Douai to, for people to learn about the sort of economic processing zones and stuff. Um, but I didn't, wasn't involved on sort of like an international or national scale, I guess, around Burma policy again until this coup happened. Um, and it just so happened that right before the coup, I was interviewing uh, Mamo Sandra Nyet, uh, you know, a, a worker uh, from the Garment Workers Union. And... Uh, it just happened that it was like a week before the coup. I had interviewed her uh, for Jacobin magazine, and then the the interview came out like literally a day or two after the coup, and we had to like rewrite it, rewrite the introduction very quickly to say this coup had just happened. And I remember at the time the editor at Jacobin uh, changed the well, he he the title he gave it was that workers are going to be the center of the anti-coup struggle. And at that time, we had no way of knowing that that was going to be true, right? It was just like a assumption. Like, it was like, literally, it was like February 2nd, I think. Um, but then, wow, like, in the next couple of days, it was like, yes, like, the workers and this massive general strike, like, just just came uh, with the garment workers and, uh, you know, the um, medical uh, people and you know the the rest is history, I guess. And I was and I was like, wow, this is this is a pretty uh, amazing thing. And uh, I was really thinking about, okay, how can I use some of my old skill set in order to um, get involved uh, again? And so at the time, I was both like writing these articles for Jacobin with my like old colleague from U.S. Campaign for Burma, uh, Nadi. Um, and I was looking to, to do a campaign and, and briefly launched a campaign 
trying to get uh, multinationals to pressure factories to not fire workers for participating in the CDM. Um, and I had spoken to sort of these like international campaigners and I thought it was a winnable campaign and like talked to the workers on the ground and they said, yeah, this is what we really need. Like, because workers are afraid to participate for getting fired, but if you can get the factory to say they won't fire them, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it seemed like the perfect campaign and lots and lots of people were, were signing up for it, uh, different groups, international groups. But then you had the siege of Huang Daiyar um, and just like the entire industrial sector shutting down, uh, you know, for a period of time anyway. And then at that time, you had a, the advocates kind of uh, went in different directions. Um, I was working at the time closely with a friend at the Solidarity Center and the AFL-CIO. And, you know, they took the position of a lot of the workers on the ground, uh, the worker organizers anyway, who are like, we were willing to die for this struggle. You know, we are definitely willing to lose our jobs. Like, get these multinational corporations to any dime to the regime. You know, even though garment work doesn't really, uh, as percentage of, like, you know, it's not the biggest source of revenue for the regime, but they were like, just get them out. Any, any money taken from the regime is good. Uh, gum up the economy. That's our strategy. You know, I haven't having had been involved in the import ban, you know, back in 2003, um, at a time when there was a lot less, uh, um, garment work in, in Burma, uh, had, you know, I just didn't feel like we should go down that route again, where you just completely cut, uh, the country off from Western markets. Um, especially if it was going to be a long-term struggle, which it, you know, is going to be a long-term struggle, unfortunately. So I, I both like didn't want to go against the workers and I didn't want to do what the workers were saying I should do. So I just, you know, let other people take that on and uh, um, started focusing on, on Chevron and uh, Chevron then brought me to uh, sanctions again, like particularly the U.S. sanctioning uh, Myanmar oil and gas. So I've been spending a lot of time over the past couple of months uh, you know, uh, I'm back again doing congressional advocacy and getting people around the country to uh, call their Congress members in order to pass the Burma bill because it does have sanctions on MOGE in it, which uh, could uh, cut off these sort of financial flows. Yeah. Right. I, I want to go back to what you said when the coup broke about this article that you wrote for Jacobin about the um, the garment workers. And I remember when that article came out, I remember seeing it. And, you know, for me personally, it was a bit kind of off the radar and trying to understand the role that these garment workers were fitting into the overall movement, uh, especially as you mentioned, uh, not not just fitting in, but actually being one of the uh, the, the leading agents of what was happening. Because when when it first broke, I was looking at like what are the monks doing? What's so going the on? you know oil and gas is the biggest contributor to um, I believe like like sort of international trade in Myanmar, but the next two categories are both different categories of textiles. Um, the, you know, as China has developed a lot of the lower, uh, kind of wage, um, you know, textile manufacturing has moved to Southeast Asia and, you know, Burma opened up at a time, uh, when a lot of, uh, capital was looking, um, for other places to invest in, in garment work. 
uh, garment work is very often, you know, sort of the first phase of um, incorporation into the global economy, like sort of like, you know, transition to uh, a particular model of, of capitalism. Um, and so it, it's just a really interesting sector to look at. Um, and it just employs a lot of people. I mean, there's probably 700,000, at least before the coup, there's probably 700,000 garment workers, almost entirely young women, um, almost entirely who, you know, migrated to be bar garment workers. So it's, it really is like a center of a lot of, uh, you know, different dynamics going on, you know, uh, rural to urban migration, it has a lot to do with you know, urbanization, uh, remittances, you know, global capital. Um, so I think they're important because they stand at the intersection of all these different things. Um, and they're, you know, able to gum up the economy in a way, um, cause they are an important contributor to international exchange and because they're from all over, like they have connections all over, right? Like they're, they're really connecting a larger part of, of Myanmar than, uh, simply just the industrial sectors. Like the industrial sectors have a lot of reach, um, so I think for all those reasons. And what have the garment workers been doing these last four or five months since the coup? Yeah, well, um, so when it first happened, uh, you know, they had already been organized, uh, at least portions of them. Um, Burma had experienced a uh, major strike wave in uh, 2019, um, which is sort of like typical for this stage of development um and you had a lot of like wildcat strikes meaning uh there wasn't a formal union going in and, and uh creating these strikes um you know the workers would sort of organically organize they'd have these sort of like worker centers that would help workers organize uh and then they would go on strike and then they would uh, form unions that way um and you know, you hear from a lot of the workers I interviewed, like this feeling of agency that they got from participating in these strikes, um, from actually getting demands from their bosses, from having, you know, more respect from their bosses after the strikes. This is something that I heard a lot from workers that I interviewed that was taking place prior to the coup. So like during the period of democratic opening. So the workers really strongly identified, at least the ones I talked to, with the democratic opening. Like, they really, really believed that this had improved their lives, particularly because of the right to strike. And when the coup happened, I think they just really, really didn't want to go back to the old world, right? Like, first of all, like, the factories are to some extent a result of the opening. And then the... Um, the movement, like the ability to have a workers' movement, uh, was also to some degree uh, a result of the opening, to a large degree. I mean, there were also strikes prior to the sort of opening, and uh, you know, um, I can hear our, our friend who teaches about this in Singapore, uh, whose name is escaping me, Campbell, uh, criticizing me for for not pointing that out. So it wasn't all due to the opening. There were already strikes before that. But the workers themselves very much like attribute it to the opening and their, their ability to improve their own situation. Um, not that they thought the NLD was perfect, like the NLD had a lot of problems when it came to workers' rights, but like 
they they all saw it as so much better than the country they grew up in, and especially because of the ability to change. And when they felt that it was going to go back, that they could no longer strike, they could no longer, you know, fight for their rights. Um, I think they just wouldn't have it. And that, that's why you had these like massive, um, you know, wa- walkouts and workers participating. Um, that said, like around the siege of Hong Thayar, like when, when the army basically went to war with the industrial sectors of the country, um, you had a lot of factories shutting down, uh, not because of labor activity, but because the ports had shut down, um, orders had stopped. Uh, being made, uh, or at least like, you know, I had to finish the orders that were made, but the but ships were literally not docking in Yangon, um, and so that like kind of shut the whole. Not it didn't grind it completely to a halt, but really, really stopped industrial activity. And from what my understanding is, it it has been trickling back over the past. Uh, more recently, um, but none of the factories are running at the old capacity. Um, you know, some workers have have even gone and and uh, to the the mountains to be trained uh, for PDF and such. So, um, yeah, it's a lot of things going on. Very very dynamic. Seven hundred thousand people, mostly young women. <laughs> mm, right, right, yeah, and that that was what I was just going to ask about. We know how the regime has targeted doctors, people in the medical profession, Gen Z students, even monks. Um, you now have these largely female factory workers that are leading strikes and supporting unions and supporting various kinds of, at, at least in the early stages, from according to your articles, nonviolent uh, resistance to just not being not contributing to the economy and wanting to sit it out. Uh, at, a, at a personal stake, what what were the risks that they were running by um, by by leading these strikes and encouraging people not to go to work at factories? I mean, huge risks, like uh, like existential risks to their persons. I mean, they they and the the amount to which you know, and I know a lot of people involved in the movement, or I think everybody involved in the movement has had this experience. We were talking to somebody, and all of a sudden they're like, "I'm willing to die," and you're like, "They are serious. They are ready to die." I mean, that they they people's houses were raided. I mean that. Some of the early massacres were in the industrial districts. Um, I think Hong Thayer was at the first worst one at about, I think, 40 people killed in the street, um, you know, in one day. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, they're, they're risking it all. Uh, I mean, you know, at different levels. I mean, being an organizer, obviously, you're, you're, you're risking your life. Um, the... Uh, the, the lower level people, they're risking their jobs, you know, which is like very important. Like people live, you know, very much paycheck to paycheck. They're like, if they're lucky, they're sending money home. Um, I've even heard stories of people who like, you know, they don't even make enough to send money back home. And even though maybe that's what they hoped they would be able to do. Um, and so, and it wasn't in a particularly good situation, you know, before, uh, you know, the COVID had been rough on workers' unions. It was sort of used as an excuse to cut wages and, and crack down on them. Um, 
so they're already having a, a rough go of it materially. Um, and yeah, I mean, at, at minimum, people are risking their jobs and, you know, at, at, at maximum their lives. And what's the current state of the strike movement at the factories? That's a that's a great question. Um, I you know I I think it has gone from being central. I think the public sector workers continue to be central, and the and the sort of later articles I've written about uh, have been on the the, the railway workers. Uh, like the most recent article in South China Morning Post, I had and the um, the uh, uh, Jacobin were both interviews with railway workers. I think that continues to be central. I think the private sector, um, you know, you haven't had these like giant, because the workers had been striking and then participating in these giant marches. Um, and as we all know, it's the, the movement has moved from giant marches to like these more sort of sparse uh, kind of uh, flash marches and such. Um, and so I think it's a little bit less central right now. Um, I think a lot of the organizers are sort of regrouping um, and figuring out exactly what what role they're going to play or, or have maybe incorporated into other groups. Um, you know, the 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 factory economy is sort of like I I believe you know trucking along at but just at a much lower sort of output. And you know, these aren't those kind of jobs with like. Uh, guarantees of, of anything in particular like like garment workers work as long as there are orders and if there aren't orders you don't have a job um and the the whole sort of and it's always been like this very precarious uh living um and so you know a lot of them have gone back to their hometowns too i mean a lot just a lot of different things have happened i mean that when the when the siege happened you did have like a, a major, uh, a lot of workers just fled, uh, went back home. Some of them have been like trickling back. Um, yeah. Um, so you were talking about this goal of gumming up the economy and making things difficult in terms of how um, just the, the state was able to operate. And one of the ideas I've heard thrown around is that uh, to weaken the generals, that there should simply be an effort to completely disrupt, if not destroy, tank the Myanmar economy to make it all but impossible for any kind of financial or economic thing to happen. A, a pushback I've heard against that is that the generals have almost unlimited cash and resources coming from other places that are able to hold out. And it's really just going to be the Burmese people that are suffering from an economy that is just uprooted and destroyed completely. So, yeah, I mean, so I feel like the, one of the, the strongest uh, tool that workers have is the strike. Um, and to, the ability to go on strike, the ability to withhold their labor. Um, so I don't believe that, for example, the U.S. or the EU should put an import ban uh, like they did in 2003, meaning that you couldn't uh, export things to the United States or, or EU, which should like, you know, continue to be large uh, markets for textiles. Um, Simply because I, I think that allowing the factories to persist uh, and allowing the workers to, uh, you know, still be workers uh, and, and, you know, participate, go up the economy as much as they want to, uh, but also have the option, um, I think is important. 
people will push back on that from different perspectives. Uh, one, just from sort of the international labor movement perspective. If you're going to make a t-shirt in Myanmar, which is now uh, back to being an authoritarian state where you no longer have the right to organize, or another country uh, like maybe Indonesia um, or Vietnam, which, which does have like a, a, a somewhat functional labor movement, they've actually, you know, are opening up, like they're allowing more workers' rights in Vietnam uh, as, as time progresses. Um, do we really want that to empower or, you know, dedicate capital to a country that is, is going to be like so oppressive of its labor movement because in, in a way like that hurts everybody else, right? Like that brings down wages everywhere else. It, 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 it forces, pits workers against each other everywhere else. So um, if, if your most important thing is just, just worker organizing, maybe that is a reason to pull out. I would say, though, that there's like a different responsibility once you've already invested. Um, and, and also, so I think you want to think about is, is, is a sector resource intensive or is it labor intensive? So oil and gas is uh, it's resource intensive. It's capital intensive. Like there's not that many people who work in oil and gas, but it gets a whole lot of money to the government. So I think as much as possible that you can cut that off, you should cut that off. Um, I think that something like uh, textile manufacturing, which is labor intensive, uh, but not capital intensive, it gives a lot of people jobs. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, people will probably need those. Um, so... Yeah, again, I, I, I guess I want to have the labor movement to be able to have the tool. Uh, so I don't, I don't think the international community should just like tell companies to not make t-shirts in Burma anymore. Um, but I think the CDM obviously is the most important thing that's happening and still happening. And uh, I had a party the other weekend where we raised some money that we're do donating to the, uh, the, the train workers, the, the railway workers, because you know, they need to stay alive while they stay on strike. So it sounds like in terms of the individual factory workers, you're more of the opinion that the um, possibility of withholding their labor should be left up to them, that exactly. the international actors shouldn't make that decision for them, but it should be placed on them to uh, understand their needs and <clears throat> their priorities and their sacrifices in order if they want to uh, lead strikes, if they want to work for their families, if they want to leave altogether and join some other kind of resistance movement, and and that really it should be uh, that, that they should be given the tools to make those decisions. Is that right? Really? Yes. Uh, and so what are you hearing about what it is that they're deciding to do? I'm sure it's not monolithic and there's different groups doing different things for different reasons. But now that we're past the first couple months of just the shock of the coup and the initial reactions and we're settling into a new kind of reality in Myanmar, what are those mainly young female factory workers beginning to do in responding to you know, having a very difficult set of choices? Yeah, uh, man. So, I, you know, I'm not as up to date on this as, as I as I should be, um, again, because I've been having more trouble just getting information about that. My understanding is there's a combination of people who've just gone back to their hometowns, people who are working reduced hours, and people who like continue to uh, fight the junta in different ways. 
um, including people who've like gone to the the border areas, uh, liberated areas, in order to uh, receive training, I, and that would be like more the the sort of like organizers. Um, so, I think the center of the CDM at this moment is is really the public sector workers. Um, yeah. So, how would you say what is going on right now in Myanmar with these factories and what has been going on over the last several years fits into this wider view of what you've been working on, your advocacy and study of anti-capitalism, of the growth of globalization. Um, for you, of course, the the AFL-CIO and unions, for you, of course, you're not looking at these issues specific to a local context in Burma, but you're bringing this much wider context and an historical analysis and economic study and bringing that into specifically what's been going on over the last 10 or 20 years and over the last few months in Myanmar. So what connections are you finding between some of the, the, the bigger shifts uh, and studies that you're making and how these are actually playing out on the ground? Ooh, that's an excellent question. Um, I think that, you know, it's in a way like a familiar story, uh, what happened in, in Burma uh, with the opening um, and the sort of, you know, <laughs> to use a problematic phrase from Walter Ross style, the sort of launch phase of sort of international capital where, you know, all of these uh, companies start investing and you have urban to rural migration. You know, a lot of people who are displaced by Cyclone Nargis, uh, you know, came up and became uh, factory workers. And that's fairly typical. I mean, there's usually some kind of big kind of displacement that that then creates a proletariat, like proletariatization. Um, you know, in, in China, that was uh, facilitated um, through, you know, the, the sort of like Foucault system and systems of household registration that allowed for mass migration to the factories. Um, you know, in, in uh, pre-industrial England, you had uh, the uh, sort of, enclosure acts that um, enclosed the commons and created these sort of people that could then become the proletariat work in factories because uh, they're no longer laboring on the commons. Um, and so to a, a large extent, like this is sort of a, a very typical story and, um, and, and sort of, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, like low level garment work, uh, light industry being the first wave of sort of like international investment. Um, it's just, it's, you know, since the kind of post-war world, uh, you know, this has repeated itself over and over again. Um, I mean, I found the Burma's movement very inspiring, uh, you know, even prior, obviously prior to the coup, uh, and you know that's why I chose to write that write that Jacobin article about it. What I found inspiring about it was just how spontaneous the organizing was. That there was just like there seemed to be a thirst for the organizing, and I don't know if that was partly due to the fact that like sort of democracy and ideas of democracy were in the air, and like people felt like okay, we finally have democracy, and now um, you know, but this but you know, no democracy without democracy in the workplace, right? Like you spend most of your time at work, right? Like your, your boss has a lot more control over you than, you know, most other institutions. So, um, 
you know, there's this feeling of like, okay, well, this is how we're going to get our respect. Um, and I think to some extent, you know, the workers, remember I interviewed this one worker who said, you know, oh yeah, in the rural areas, we had to wear our laundry to our toe, but now, you know, I'm in the city and I can wear what I want. And so I think it's like, and, and I experienced this a lot. I lived uh, in Shenzhen, China, uh, next to the factory where they make the iPhones and like spent a lot of time, you know, about a year with Foxconn workers, like almost hang out with them all day. And, uh, you know, they said the same thing. Like there's like this feeling of like sort of massive change. You grew up in this rural area, you know, and, and now you're like in the city and, and Yangon, I think felt like that or areas around Yangon to a lot of workers. And, uh, even though their position was like quite miserable. I mean, they didn't make that much money. They didn't have, you know, even just measuring it by like how much food they consume or like how comfortable their living situation is. This is nothing we would wish upon anybody. And it's not what we would consider like some kind of empowered existence that we would, that we would hope for people. But, you know, that I think the experience of change, uh, you know, was sort of in the air and like both, personally for the workers and, uh, you know, for the country. And I think that led to like a really militant labor movement uh, that, I, that I found very inspiring to, uh, to learn about. One thing I've noticed in the 2010s was there was this incredible experience of kind of warp speed in so many different areas. I mean, the country went from basically not having any kind of mobile phones or data or internet, except very expensive and very hard to find, to, you know, everyone having access just on their phones everywhere cheaply. And it was the same with the banking industry of not really no one having any kind of bank account to all of a sudden there were ATMs and credit cards that were in use. And it was just kind of sector by sector. There was this, like, living through that time, it just felt like this warp speed of things that people were completely shut off to one day and then it felt like the next day they suddenly had access to it and the day after that they were you know using it like uh pretty similar to how it was used in the modern world outside and so when hearing you talk about the growth of this labor movement and union and organizing and just consciousness as well of like what one expects in being in a company, what rights, if any, one has and what you know, what risks one is willing to take. I wonder if this kind of warp speed that I've referenced in some of these other areas, you've also seen over the history of how workers are starting to go into factories which are being built and are more common now than they were before with the modernization and industrialization. Are, are you finding any, any kind of similarity with certain ideas or practices that were really not very um, commonly found before and suddenly are, are now something just taken for granted and something that, you know, many people are now bringing in with them in the younger generation that we didn't see before. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and just imagine, I mean, there was like tens of thousands of workers, like, uh, you know, only a decade ago. Uh, now there's 700,000 workers. So it's like our garment worker, you know, or like industrial garment workers. So, I mean, it's like a massive, massive expansion that happened really, really quickly. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, I, I would wager to say none of those workers grew up with, with uh, mobile phones and the, you know, drop in price of SIM cards from like, two, you know, you need 2000 US dollars to have a, a working uh mobile phone to it being accessible um that yeah i mean i think that that warp speed 
really helped to feed the the labor movement from what I understand. Mm, right. And you reference also being involved in not just with factories, but also with striking railway workers that are on CDM. Can you share a bit about what you know of what these railway workers are doing and why it's important overall for the movement right now? Um, so uh, that it was a really interesting project getting to know uh, railway workers. I uh, I learned that it's almost impossible to know how many miles of track there is in Burma, for example. Um, but uh, you know, they they joined the CDM uh, probably in in the largest percentages, um, uh, second only to to the medical uh, workers. Um, is uh, is what we were told. Um, and, you know, when they started their, their strike, they were a few weeks into the strike and uh, they all got kicked out of their housing, right? Like a lot of the, the um, railway workers live in government housing. It's, it's a, a, you know, kind of a, goes back to Nguyen's period and when they were trying to create sort of like a socialism with Burmese characteristics and you had, um, you know, the different... Um, or I'm sorry, the Burmese way to socialism. Um, and you had the, um, you know, the, the literally like the government built government housing for government workers, uh, which the railway workers uh, were and are. Um, and the railway ministry uh, during the brief quasi-democratic period was... Uh, led by civilians. It wasn't one of the government-controlled uh, ministries. And it had experienced a lot of progress um, during that time. Like, uh, um, And the, I think the railway workers felt that. And they felt that they were sort of uh, part of this like modernization that was happening in the country that you talked about, the warp speed. Um, and uh, particularly the ones in Mandalay, which a lot of people focused on and, and uh, I interviewed. Um, and so... Yeah, I mean, they just, they, they participated in the general strike. They shut the whole railway down. Um, the railway is not the primary way that goods move in Burma, but it is a, a major way that, that goods move in Burma, um, especially the certain, like, regions that are hard to reach other ways. Um, and uh, there's a circle line around Yangon that I think, most people who've been to Yangon are, are aware of. Uh, they completely uh, shut it down. Um, and yeah, it's just sort of an amazing uh, group of people to get to know a, a tiny bit. Um, and they continue to be on strike, right? Like it's, it's well over 100 days. Uh, and their, their major struggle is just simply like eating. Um, so it's a important group to, uh, to give money to. I mean, they're really helping young things up, which is good. What is your understanding of how operable in general the railways are? Are there enough people that are left on their jobs to be able to basically run it? Or are they trying to train new people to learn how to operate it? Or how, how are the trains working these days? I've heard, and I, I like hesitate to say anything definitive, like you know, being uh, thousands of miles away in Washington D.C. But from what I've heard from interviewing the workers, is uh, a few things make it very hard to just get the railways running again. Um, 
in any way that feels normal. One is that they're, they're actually fairly specialized positions to be able to uh, run railways properly. Um, and so the fact that the workers have gone on CDM uh, and then the government, the workers pointed this out themselves, like the government then kicked them all out of their housing. So like, if they had like kept them in their housing, maybe they could have, you know, coerced them back to work, but they kicked them out of their housing and then they all scattered. Uh, and so it's incredibly difficult to get the railway uh, back running again um, in any way that, that resembles uh, how it was running previous to the coup. Um, so I think it is still a very effective uh, wing of the CDM, from what I understand, anyhow. How essential are these railways? What is it that they're typically carrying from one place to another, and how debilitating is it if they're not able to run as they want to? Really, really excellent question. Um, and and I was never able to, to find like a definitive answer to that. Um, again, there there are certain kinds of like like particularly like uh, harvest and stuff that that do go over the rail. Um, there a lot of them move people, right? Like in Yangon, like it's a hundred thousand people a day use the circle line, so that they're not able to do that. Um, so that is uh, to some extent gumming things up in a good way um it uh you know you i don't know what i don't know is how easy it is to just shift something from being moved by a train to being moved by a truck and i don't know how the trucks are doing right now um i uh and so that, like, that's that's an important question. I mean, the the Myanmar military, uh, I've heard, like, has tried to use the rails for other things, um, and it's just difficult because it's shut down um, for moving weapons and such. And I have heard, like, particularly in these sort of harder to reach areas, like where the roads aren't very good, that that sometimes the train is is preferable. Uh, I mean, the train itself has a lot of problems, like especially. Um, you know, rainy season and such. Uh, you know, definitely there's um, this amazing sense of sacrifice and of um, of commitment that we're seeing. We've mentioned just two groups, the uh, these the CDM um, railway workers as well as the factory workers. There's so many more and so many different sectors of society. But going back to these factory workers, you know, another thing that you've mentioned, you've identified is how many of them are young women. And of course, we've seen young women playing outsized roles in the early protests and leading leading, leading some of these protests, leading some of these movements and being on the front lines, uh, taking the megaphone um, behind the scenes, organizing and planning. And of course, women have also been at the forefront of uh, the, the the risk that's posed to them of sexual violence and assault. And we've already started hearing some really terrible stories about uh, the women that are being imprisoned and tortured and, um, and and much worse. And of course, we know that the Tamada has this reputation behind them and everywhere they go, this stain uh, of every group they interact with of, uh, of rape and um, other kinds of sexual assault. And so looking at the women that you've been in touch with, you've interviewed, you've supported through, that have led these factory strikes, 
Um, what do you think is it about this moment that so many women are now taking this role and breaking these glass ceilings that have been there to, um, to lead what's happening in just incredibly brave and courageous ways right now in spite of these terrible risks that are in front of them? That is excellent question. I think that it is partly due to the real changes that took place in the prior decade. I mean, you wouldn't, you just wouldn't have had that many young women all together in the industrial zones. You would have a much smaller number of, of young women together in the industrial zones. Um, I, and so like, you know, uh, not to be sort of doctrinaire, but like it, uh, you know, uh, Marx says activity precedes consciousness. So I think that like the fact that ever all these young women were gathered, like their place in society literally changed, right? Like, moving from the rural areas, coming to the city, all being together in the factories, it just gave them a different position in society. And then they demanded the sort of rights that uh, they associated with the, that position. Um, and so I think a lot of them sort of got their, cut their teeth on the labor movement. Um, and it, and it, and it, it just sort of had to do with like where they were and, and their feelings about um right and wrong that I think probably, you know, changed uh, due to their changed situation. I mean, that said, I do think the sort of like incorporation into the global economy and then the sort of like, you know, expansion of sort of uh, the palette of ideas that they could uh, access. Um, I think I'm sure that matters as well. But I think the real the real difference is just the material difference, right? Like they're they're in a place together where they can organize together um, and, and demand the sort of like rights that they associated with liberalism and like the liberal regime, uh, under the NLD. Um, so I think at least that's the case for the, for the factory workers. I would imagine it's sort of like urban intellectuals. It's a, it's a different story. And that ties into something that I've seen that many point that many people have been making is that one of the reasons why this current movement and protest and attempted coup is so different than before is that everything before was trying to change the status quo. There was a certain kind of rule that the military had had that was not unchanged, but that definitely was um, from year to year since 1962 was they were firmly in, in control and you were trying to disrupt that. And the big difference with right now is that they had something. You're, you're now trying to take away something that they have enjoyed, whether it's a consciousness or a, a interaction or communication with outside ideas or people, or whether it's material things, whether it's the potential of trying to, to be or do something that, um, that, that was not thought possible before. And so at this moment, you're trying to take away something that is tangible and they have had or know they could have versus other periods where they were trying to strive for some unknown reality that basically no one had really ever known. Before. Yes. And I, I 100% believe that that is why people have fought so hard and have sacrificed so much um, because it's it's like it's much hard. You give somebody a taste of something and, and, and a promise and hope. And, and the, the feeling of that just being pulled out from under you like a rug, I think that that is, is 100% what with the, with the, the organized workers were experiencing and, and so many people in the country. And yeah, I mean, really tragic. I mean, I, you know, having from worked on this from the outside, I remember 
going back to Yangon the first time when things were opening up a bit. I can't remember exactly what year it was. It was 2012 or 13 or something. And I remember walking down the street and I walked by a copy of the Irrawaddy being sold. And I was like, holy shit. Like I used to, you know, I was like, you know, like I remember like, I don't know, like 2002 or something, like staying in their house in, 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 uh, in Thailand. And that just all just seemed like such a, dream you know that that any of that would ever add to any like add up to anything other than a bunch of people selling a newspaper that is hard to you know that only so many people read you know but then all of a sudden it's like wow like this is being sold everywhere in, in yangon like it was just like and and then for whatever reason my flight in like it like i opened the new light of, i think it's the new light of myanmar or whatever the 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 title is now of that government-run paper and like Dave Matheson was on the cover, like from Human Rights Watch, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like, you know, it's like, but I don't know, and and you know, and to some extent, those things are a bit superficial. But then once you start going deeper, and you, and you talk to the workers, and they talk about how much, how much better they feel it is under that the new regime or the now gone regime. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think that sometimes that's missed, especially by a lot of my friends on the left who are really quick to like, and rightly criticize liberalism, criticize all the, the contradictions, criticize the horrible way that the Rohingya were, were treated. You know, I mean, having worked on sort of democratic politics in Burma from outside and, and particularly promoting Don Sonsuji's image, like I do feel I have a degree of blood on my own hands on that. Um, Cause we all knew it was, I don't know, not to get into this, but like, I remember like going to the border, like in, in like, you know, early two thousands and people would be like, you know, the like white, white people would be like, you know, women's league of Burma, they've got all the ethnic groups except the Rohingya, wink, wink, dirty secret. Like we all knew that it was going to be terrible. If, and I remember my old boss in 2008 saying to me, you know, if the, the, the democratic forces ever get power, the Rohingya are still fucked. I think you literally said that. And like, it's just like, we all knew that. Like, and so that, that's, it's, and it's terrible. Like, but to some degree, like, like, so for, with all the, I guess what I'm saying, with all the contradictions of the opening and all the ways that sort of people on the left, like, rightly criticize it, it, um, it was, uh, so much better for so many people, you know? <laughs> and I think it's easy to miss that. Um, and, uh, I think that, um, especially this like recent engagement with the workers like has really uh really brought that home for me there's so much in what you just said there's actually two main ideas i want to follow up with and i'm figuring out which one i want to go with first but i think the the the, the area that we have to go with uh right away is just what you brought up with the rohingya and that was a question i was i was thinking of as you were describing all this is where does that rohingya crisis fit into everything else and all the other work you've done with the anti-globalism with the reforms and the 2010s with the unions and everything else i think one way it ties in is is you and i were just talking about this incredible hope and optimism and work speed feeling that uh, the reform period brought um i think to some degree that helped blind a lot of people um i would definitely say you know burmese here in the united states but you know all over there um i i i believe inside burma too but you know i wouldn't following my sword about this but that they that there was this feeling of like hope and optimism and like hey we're finally out of this 
and uh, they just didn't want to hear it. You know what I mean? They didn't want to hear that 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 their hero was, uh, you know, you know, at at best uh, covering up. You know, at worst, sort of an accomplice in or, or, or in you know, terrible, terrible, the worst crimes. Um, and to some degree, like I I feel that a little bit. I mean, I. You know, I was talking about Dr. Shane Wynn uh, in here, you know, the NC, NGU, like the old government exile. And like, you know, that family like sacrificed like so much, you know, like they literally were like homeless for a period and such, like while they were doing their advocacy. And like so many people have sacrificed so much to get on Sun Tzu in power. I think they just didn't want to hear it when it became clear that she was as bad as she was, um, or at least on this subject. I mean, maybe she just didn't want to lose Rakhine State, like, and, you know, the NUG has now made the decision to uh, be, um, you know, like, to to reform the laws around the Rohingya, like, the NUG is, like, much better than the NLD was ever, um, and they seem to be moving in the right direction, at least, partly because they're being pushed by the West, but they're, you know, had to choose between uh, making some amends with the Rohingya and getting the support of the West, or having the support of, you know, many in Rakhine state and they, they've made their choice. Um, but I, I think that like there was, um, I think part of it is like, it's like a downside of optimism. You know, a lot of critical theory from like the 1960s, like Adorno and stuff is sort of just talking about like how like optimism and fascism are like this, you know, very tied. Um, and I think you saw that. Um, I think that, uh, you know, how does it tie into advocacy right now? You know, I think that, that, uh, you know, it's, it's been honestly the biggest barrier in Congress. And I, I spent a, a week out in Hollywood, uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago because all these like Hollywood celebrities used to support us campaign for Burma. So I went and like reapproached a bunch of their agents and stuff. I'm like, Hey, do you think they want to do this again? And, you know, a lot of them are like, we don't want to support the CDM or like the crew or any, we just don't want to deal with Burma because that woman was so terrible, you know, because that's all anybody knows about Burma, right? Like they know that there was somebody named Aung San Suu Kyi that used to, we used to think was inspiring, but then turned out to be an accomplice with genocide. I would, I would say that's what most Amer educated people know about Burma and they know nothing else. And so it's, it's been a big barrier for advocacy. Um, and, and I think it's, uh, it's really cost the movement, like, uh, untold amounts. Um, and it's, it's, I, it's, it's the primary reason that, uh, the Congress has been recently slow to move on this. It's the primary reason it's been hard to get old, like celebrities and stuff back involved in this. Um, and so, uh, it, yeah, it really, really hurt. Uh, not just the Rohingya, but the entire country. Um, and uh, it's tragic. How does it like tie into like in a materialist reality uh, or like understanding of the world? I don't quite know. I mean, like I, you, you could make the argument and, you know, Sassy, like some people have made this argument, but then have been highly criticized for it that like, you know, as property rights became more solid, like you have, uh, competition over land that made it like more desirable to like kick out the Rohingya. It's been like a lot of pushback to people who made that argument. Um, I don't really know what's true about that. 
Mm. The other thing that I want to go back to and what you said a few minutes ago, I mentioned there were two themes in there that I found really important to discuss. And the other theme, aside from Rohingya, was that you were just talking about the the rapid growth of change that was taking place. And you referenced flying into the country after being out of it for a while and being amazed by some of the things you found. And you also referenced some of your um, uh, some some arguments that came from the more extreme left of, of kind of criticizing that change. And I wanted to give something of my background that my personal background, as well as another sector that kind of coincides with what you were saying, see where they all come together. So from my background, I was, when the changes started, I was actually in Myanmar for most of that time, but I had something really interesting happen in my life that gave me a different perspective on it. Up until the time the reforms began, I was living and working in Yangon. So I was very much involved in just, um, in, 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 uh, what what was happening in the news and in society and, and everything else. And uh, up to 2012, nothing much really happened. I mean, things moved really slowly. Like I, jo- I tell the friends now as uh, joking, but it's actually, it's very true. If, um you know, once every six months, there'd be like a, a new coffee shop or a new, um, some new store that would open and everyone would talk about it because that was the, the only thing that happened at that time. There was just such slow progress anywhere that if a new hotel went up then everyone thought it was just incredible and wanted to see the design and where it was located because there was just such slow progress on every front. In 2012, I had left my job. And at that point, I was much more interested in uh, wanting to pursue meditation, Burmese language study, be at monasteries, learn about monasticism. And so for a few years, I was really tucked away at remote monasteries. And I didn't really have a sense of the changes taking place. But every, I don't know, every, you know, month or three months or whatever it was, I would have to come to Yangon to do something to see a friend or see a doctor, take care of visa or, you know, just something that, that had to happen. And so every time, so I was basically going back to my home city where I had all these years in a community and knew every inch of areas of the downtown and what, you know, and knew how slow things were moving. And yet every time I would go, it was like a new city. Like it was, it was like, you know, I'd go one time I'd go and it was like, oh my God, there's cell phones now. And next time I'd go and it's like, well, now there's ATMs. And another time I'd go and it's like, well, now there's new cars on the road. Because of course, before the reforms, the, the only time you saw cars that were in any working condition, they were either diplomats or uh, military or cronies. There was no one else who could afford a, a car that even ran in, in any kind of decent shape. And so every time I would go, there would be like some huge sector of society that had just been opened up where it's just like, oh, like, oh my God, okay, now the modern movie theaters or whatever, wh- whether it was big or mundane or anything, it was just like the city that I knew so well, it was just changing in front of my eyes. And because I wasn't living through those changes, I was just getting snapshots every two months. It was like, okay, well, now they have this and they never in their history they never had this and now they have this going forward and i remember when one of my burmese friends who was like you know, 29 30 years old came to the monastery where i was staying at and he proudly showed me his atm card and bank book and it was like i you know it was the first time he'd ever owned anything like this and he had a you know, hundred dollars or something in there and he was just so proud and happy that he had this this kind of mobile banking which he had, had never existed up to that point so i'm just seeing all these changes start to take place and as i'm seeing them so what's really interesting is you're talking about the pushback and the reaction action from some of the more progressive left and extreme left and and Western circles. The pushback I saw was from Westerners who had come to Myanmar to intensively pursue meditation and monasticism. And for them, they had seen Myanmar as kind of this golden land, this unchanged golden land where the conditions for practice and for Buddhist study and life 
mirrored in some ways the and some they they would some people would say this outright the conditions of 2500 years ago in india when the buddha actually lived and so the way the buddha would talk in the suttas and the conditions of people on the ground and the villages this would actually there you can live in some places in myanmar that were really you know in in up to 2010 that were really not much different from what the buddha was describing 2500 years ago in in ancient india and so there was this this real rejection of modernity and all of its problems and trappings in a way to just really live simply in this environment that uh, that was not possible in many other places in the world, and even in, in, in primitive places that didn't uh, didn't have a Buddhist background and a, and a generous giving and supporting of the spiritual life and the, the path that they wanted to follow. And just to give a couple of examples that illustrated that, I remember one of my friends who, who was a monk, uh, a Western monk, complaining that one of his supporters had had now had risen enough in society to own a car and that by having a car, they were now going to be going here and going there and maybe taking leisure trips. And it was this kind of like this modern distraction that complicated life when it was so much simpler before. And I was really put off by that. I mean, that really made me uncomfortable because I felt it was really inappropriate for someone coming from a Western background that was privileged with, uh, you know, education and opportunities and health and everything else. And you, you chose, you chose choose to reject that and to, to go back to a simpler life, to just wanting to dictate what an entire people should or shouldn't have rights to. And with that in my mind, I remember one time I went to Yangon and I mentioned all these, these changes that are taking place in the city in these like, you know, one, two, three month increments. Some of those are profound and, and important changes like the existence of banks. Some of them are just kind of silly and mundane and, and this together, it was really my feeling going forward that, you know, we um, whatever opportunities we've been blessed or cursed with in the modern world, we don't really have the right in coming from and having benefited from them and chosen how we want to integrate or not beneficial and destructive forces into our lives that we don't really have the right to then dictate to others um, what and how they should be using uh, that they've never had access to before, whether one is coming from a more Marxist and um, uh, Western liberal background or whether it's coming, whether one's coming from a more religious, spiritual, monastic background of a kind of simple country that one would like to go to to pursue a meditation practice. This is the reality that these changes are taking place. They're taking place rapidly that people, uh, to a larger extent than before, they have certain agency to make decisions in their life that can create opportunities for well-being that they've never had before. And they also, as goes with freedom, they also have a greater right and ability to make choices that are more destructive and, you know, non-productive and wasting time with the internet or whatnot, um, gaming, whatever, that, uh, that they didn't have before. But this is the reality. And this is something that I think those of us who've come from a background where we've enjoyed these uh, the the ability to cho- to to choose what we want and how we want it that um, that we don't have this right to dictate to to others what they should let in and how they should let it in and, and everything else so um, so yes it's just interesting looking from these different sectors uh, yours with um, the the Western left and mine more with monasticism and seeing how. Um, people in modern countries have um, from their own backgrounds wanted Burma to represent something that that they've lost and not really having the right to trap a people in your vision of you know how you want a, a, another country or people to develop yeah I, I I wholeheartedly agree with that yeah that's uh 
that's really well put and really interesting. I appreciate you sharing that, actually. Looking at it from your side and hearing from colleagues on the left who are living in a, um, in a, in a modern liberal society and then making these criticisms on the way that Burma's developing, can you share a bit about what criticisms they're making, what their concerns are, and your own reaction or feeling about um, the validity of, of what it is they're saying about the way that Burma's developing? I guess a few things that I, I push back against, and I don't think this is only a tendency of the left, um, but I think this is actually more of a tendency of sort of, you know, just liberal culture in, in the U.S., uh, who again, like, know two things about Burma. Like, if you're, like, like a educated American, you know that there, like, used to be Aung San Suu Kyi as an inspiring person, symbol of democracy, and then she, like, you know, became an apologist for genocide, and that's basically all you know, and you, uh, maybe this fits some, like, bigger vision of the world you have about, like, sort of, like, the trials and tribulations that democracy has faced in recent years and um and obviously i think that we should center stories about the rohingya i mean it's very horrible what's happened to them i mean i went to the idp camps in 2017 and like like two months later they're all burnt to the ground and everyone's forced across the border so it's like this horrific thinking about um but i also think it's 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 wrong to then sort of like I mean, I literally have encountered this, like, a, a, you know, especially among, you know, people who don't know that much about Burma, but used to support the democracy movement back in the day, you know, who are like, I don't want to get involved anymore. Look at what happened last time. And I feel like that's the problem. It's like, look at what happened last time. Like, okay, that happened. That was horrible. But also, like, lots and lots of people have had uh, access to, you know, you know, even simple things like, like better sanitation, like, you know, uh, more choice over their life. Like, I, I don't know, like, it, it's just hard to, uh, to me, I think it, in what's interviewing all these workers have really brought home is that these people really felt like their, their lives has, have been improved. And, and it's, you know, it's a country of 54 million people. Um, so that, I mean, I think there's a, a general skepticism of like capitalist development, but you know, a lot a lot of people on the left. Um, but I don't know. I think that honestly, that's just sort of bad Marxism. I mean, Marx himself felt like capitalism as a step toward a better world, uh, and uh, there's also debate. Uh, there's different readings of Marx when it comes to that, but. Um, yeah, sorry, I don't have a great answer because I because I don't want to just pick somebody and sort of like like straw man that person. Um, but I I do think to say I, well, I guess what I see a lot of okay, this is here what I'm talking about. Like right when the coup happened, and this continues, there was a certain group of people that just said this shows there never was a transition, and they had a point, right? Like it's like it, the military never really gave up all that much power, um, and they could take it back at any moment, which is what we saw. So. They're right in that sense, but they're wrong in the sense that subjectively, so many people in Myanmar experienced the transition. So to say that there was no transition is to literally just like rob huge swaths of Myanmar society, definitely the majority, like of their their lived experience, right? Their agency, their their 
understanding of what had happened over the last 10 years. So I, I don't, and I, I roll my, I'll say this, I roll my eyes at the articles that say, this shows there was no transition, because I, I think that just, it trivializes what was very, very meaningful for so many people. Yeah, that's really important. And that actually hits at this wider area that I don't even know if you were intending, but this concern that there have been some articles and scholarship written by non-Burmese outside of the country with their own theories and their own understanding that has not only been grossly inaccurate or misunderstanding certain things that many people on the ground would grasp instantly, but also quite damaging and destructive to the movement and to what people are doing. I mean, we saw within weeks of the protest happening that there were articles that came out in major publications that were titled thing, you know, sensational um kind of clickbait headlines of like, you know, why the people can't win or, you know, why the top medal will prevail or something like that. And it was just like, this is so insulting. And this is not just insulting for in terms of the motivation and the um, the morale of what the people were doing, but it's also like just being inside one's own mindset of study and separated from what people are actually living through. through. So I think, you know, I think that's right. Like to, to write something like that, that there there is, you know, this shows there really was no trend transition, well, okay, maybe some of your points have some accuracy and we could break those down and look at why there might have been a facade in some areas of things that we thought were moving in some way but weren't. And now that this has happened, it shows that, you know, things weren't as um, as advanced as, uh, as as maybe we hoped. But to take that argument to then be that, that you, as you said very passionately, to rob people of what they actually experienced, which I think goes back to what we were saying earlier, that they have something they don't want taken away. Well, if this was all a facade and all fake and nothing really had, had progressed in any way, then I don't think we'd be seeing this level of consciousness and activism and sacrifice that we're seeing right now. And so I think this really does hit at why media needs to be including those Burmese voices, whether it's, um, you know, activism or scholarship or journalism or whatever the media platform is. Like, we need to be talking to those people that are on the ground and making sure that whatever our specialty is, that it is being informed by um, by people that are directly impacted by this and hopefully more than informed, hopefully being authored and, um, and investigated uh, by those voices that uh, that that are much more in touch and know more than than those that are outside it. Absolutely, and that, you know that's why I've tried to like do that with the Jacobin articles and the South China Morning Post articles, like really center the the voices of the people I was interviewing, and uh, and yeah, I mean, there's a reason why like Dante reserved a special ring in hell for those who uh, claim to know the future, right? Like those those analysts, professional analysts, and the articles about this is why the people can't win and stuff. I mean. You know, I, I, it's, it's, yeah, I found that infuriating. And, and I think that it, it doesn't come from a position of knowing because they don't, you don't know what's about to come. I mean, did any of those people predict the coup and then the massive uprising? Like, no. So I, uh, it's, it's, it's just the, the arrogance beyond arrogance that I think, uh, some people who are spit out of the elite Western institutions, like, uh, just can't seem to separate themselves from. Right. And when you, t- when you mentioned talking to local voices, one of those local voices you talked to in a recent article was Dr. Sasa. So what did you learn in talking to him? And was there anything that surprised you? Great question. I mean, his story, like, like how he grew up in Chin State and the, 
the amount of just like, like Nadi, who I interviewed him with, kept saying like, wow, we got to write down his story and sell it to Hollywood or something. I mean, like, he's like, goes to Yangon as like a, you know, farmer and, and you know, and just like has to like kind of gets abused in all these different places that he stays in. And I mean, it, it's an amazing story. And I think it, um, it really tells a story about Myanmar too. I mean, I, I, I suppose anybody who lives in Myanmar telling their story is going to, you know, you can help you understand a greater reality about what has happened there. But, but just the, the amount of resilience, the amount of like, he's a very curious person. Um, I found that, you know, he like not by that, I mean, he has a lot of curiosity, I think about the world and that, and that he, and his ability to sort of learn and adjust, um, yeah, I found really, really, uh, it, it was fun to talk to him. Um, he's a, it's just a really incredible guy. Um, yeah. What, what stands out to me is that this is almost by accident, just because, you know, he was with Aung San Suu Kyi when the coup broke on that morning. He disguised himself as a taxi driver and then um, and then made it, took three days escaping to India. So it's really this kind of happen chance thing where he's landed in this role. And this is the way that history works. I mean, this is, um, this is how things have always happened, that sometimes the moment finds you and it then tells you what kind of person you are and broadcasts that to the world. And Sometimes in it's only in those moments that you really know what you're made of. And Dr. Sasa is a man of that moment where he's found himself in that. And he's learning about himself and we're all learning about him and the way that he's responding to something unprecedented. But the thing that really strikes me is that given who he is, his background, his community, his uh, uh, what he's done, he is one of the first fresh Burmese voices that is not hampered by the sins of the past, you can say, you know, that has, is able to emerge cleanly from, or I should say has the potential to emerge cleanly from these kind of traps of certain ways of thinking and certain dynamics and is, is able to, you know, has the potential to be able to break out of those in, um, in not having to be an apologist for certain things that have happened and, you know, having, being able to make a, a clean slate and a, and a clean break and, you know, to have someone like him as the spokesperson at this time, I, I think it just, it, it, it leaves wide open certain possibilities of what he can do for, um, for, for leading all of this forward in positive ways. Absolutely. Yeah. That's how I really like how you put that. Like you do, I did get the feeling from talking to him and I hadn't articulated it to myself until you just said it. Like you feel this, this possibility, you know, like he thinks he's about 40. He doesn't even really know because his mother didn't write down his birthday, you know, but, um, but yeah, and and it and it he's a, a a new generation and and somebody who happened to find himself in that position. Yeah, I really like how you said that. Yeah, right. So, in, I, w- I want to go back to what we were talking about just a moment ago and looking at some of the uh, the the international uh, analysts that have um, and people in solidarity with the movement and how they've been responding, um, particularly on the left. And in terms of the work you've been doing with the unions, not just now but over your whole career in the AFL CIO, uh, I certainly know that there's historically, you know, not looking at the past couple of decades, looking at the past couple of centuries, there's just enormous solidarity 
solidarity with union and unionists and pride in that. And so as this union culture and consciousness has started to grow within Myanmar, has there, has there been any solidarity or support from unions in other countries that are seeing their fellow brethren of what they're, of how they're standing up in these the most difficult of times? And as new as union consciousness might be in Myanmar, has there been any international solidarity or support from other, other sectors and fellow unionists and other places? Yeah. Um, so uh, one thing, there is a group here in the United States, which is part of the AFL-CIO, uh, which is um, focused on uh, Asian and Pacific Islanders. Uh, and they have uh, really an impressive uh, young Chin woman working for them. And she set up a, a solidarity fund. Um, the uh, Solidarity Center, which is also part of uh, AFL-CIO, I believe, uh, was um, doing a lot of work on the ground prior to the coup um, and uh, continues now. Um, there have been a lot of, I mean, I think you probably saw the French railway workers, uh, you know, did a little action for uh, the railway workers in Myanmar. Um, the international labor, the ILO, uh, you know, refused to recognize the SAC as a legitimate government of Myanmar, the, uh, international labor organization. Um, so there is, yeah, there, there is a lot of solidarity. Um, obviously there's like room for more. Um, but, uh, uh, but yes, yes, there's been a lot. Um, the Asian Pacific Islander piece of the AFL-CIO has done some fundraising for the, the striking CDM workers, uh, French unions, um, expressing solidarity, particularly the railway unions. Um, so there, there is a feeling of worker solidarity. There's still a piece of worker movements in every country that are focused on sort of workers of the world uniting. So, um, and in that spirit, uh, people, uh, have, have done a lot, I think. Right. So all of this references the, uh, the union-based strikers that are taking place. In the very beginning of our conversation, you made a distinction between the, um, the, the labor of those on the ground that were making t-shirts, as the example you said, and some of the bigger players that are more resource-based, like Moj and like Chevron. And, uh, and we haven't talked about that so much. So can you share a bit about what's going on with some of those larger natural resources and uh, how things have been progressing, why their role is so vital in this, and what uh, an update us about what their response has been and, uh, since the coup? So, um, you know, the major source of revenue for the regime is extractives, um, Chevron and Total uh, being the two Western companies that um, uh, Total being the majority owner, Chevron being the minority owner of the uh, Yadana pipeline. Um, and it's just a massive amount of money that goes to the regime. Um, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year, if not more. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of campaigning around this. Uh, I myself, not so long ago, was standing in front of Chevron's lobbying office in Washington, D.C. with a pinata with Chevron's lobbyist face pinned to it, whacking the pinata. Um, and uh, the, by the way, this guy is like particularly terrible. He spent 50, 40, I'm sorry, 
spent 20 years at the State Department uh, working on Southeast Asia policy. Uh, and, you know, after 20 years, you can retire with a pension. And so he did that, and he decided that the next thing he should do after 20 years of public service is become Chevron's lobbyist, a um, guy named Craig Hall. But I just can't imagine that kind of, I don't know, so ever making a choice like that. Um, I think it's very condemnable. Like, I mean, at least like people within the Tavendal, like they, you know, you can understand like they, they get trapped. They're like, they're, you know, they're afraid that their families will be literally, you know, have a lot of harm come to them if they desert. But, you know, somebody who's built their life in public service. And then the guy also has a PhD in religion, which I also find like disgusting that you could have a PhD in religion and then spend your life defending Chevron and, and the New York Times did a really good expose uh, on Chevron. Um, everyone should read it. It's uh, by their the founder of ProPublica, um, uh, Ken, uh, wrote a really great work, uh, piece about uh, all the sort of ways that Chevron is trying to undermine the sanctions. Um, and uh, the, um, sorry, so <laughs> that's the opposition. The good side is there. There has been some movement. Um, uh, Senator Rubio and uh, Senator Cardin uh, sent a letter to um, the administration asking for uh, Moj to be sanctioned. Um, and uh, there's an upcoming bill that um, and and this would like prevent uh, Chevron from making its payments to the the, the regime. Uh, Total and Chevron themselves have. Uh, said that they are going to suspend what amounts to about 10% of the payments uh, that they make every year, um, which is mostly just a token thing. Uh, they Their next payment that that is due in this particular revenue stream that they have suspended is uh, not due until next March. Um, so they probably have time to sort of wiggle their way out of that. Um, so... Uh, it's, it's a way that we can deny money to the regime. Um, my own personal bitterness, I guess, is like, you know, back in 2003, what the U.S. did is they banned imports from Burma, um, which is labor intensive, right? Like it cost people their jobs, but never really touched the, this aspect of things like the the um, oil and gas um which again is uh capital intensive so it doesn't give that many people jobs and it goes straight to the a lot of the money given to the regime goes straight to the regime so um and uh you know there's been like sort of a lot of trickery from chevron there's some like really brilliant researchers that kind of every time chevron comes up with an argument they come out with a counter argument um People have been working really tirelessly, whose names I can't share because they have friends in Burma, but just I've been really blown away by some of the amazing research that people are doing uh, against Chevron. Um, but yeah, this is something people can get involved in. If you live in the United States, like you should definitely be contacting your member of Congress, asking them to support the Burma Act being written by uh, Senator Cardin, because um, it will push the administration on this particular issue. Um, to, to get Chevron to pause its payments to the regime. Um, it would be, you know, I don't think it would, it would be uh, the linchpin, but it would definitely uh, contribute to uh, taking a certain revenue, a major revenue stream from the Burmese military. Yeah, we're right now.
yeah, well, right now, every single thing counts. So everything that we can do from any area, it, it, it all matters. And that was actually going to be a next question for you is looking at for listeners that are concerned about this issue that are outside of the country. You know, you've had a lifetime of advocacy and you're very involved in that now. Um, you mentioned one thing people can do is to write their, if they're American citizens, to write their local representative and, and um, reference this Burma Act. What for list, for other listeners that are outside of the country, what else would you recommend that they can do from their own walks of life? Yeah, great, great question. Um, so I'm, I guess I'm going to address the 300 million Americans. Uh, I, I, so America has a very uh, particular role in the global economy. Like 88% of international transfers have a dollar on one side, right? The, there's some really great uh, work on the global economy that uh, my friend Sean Stars in um, Hong Kong has done, uh, which shows that, like, you know, despite all the hype, you know, uh, almost every major sector is dominated by U.S. companies globally. Americans, like, own the vast majority of, of uh, global capital. So what the U.S., what rules the U.S. puts on uh, global companies, on its own companies, on the Security and Exchange Commission, on all these different institutions are really impactful in a way that I think in no other country can be impactful. Like we hear from our French colleagues that Total is more afraid of, you know, American sanctions and French government actions, like for obvious reasons. So uh, if you're in America, you don't have to be American. Uh, you could be a refugee. You could be undocumented. But if you currently reside in the United States, uh, I think you have, and you know about this issue, you have some responsibility to try and influence the way the U.S. is reacting. Um, the best way to do that is to uh, actually don't write your member of Congress. Get on the phone, call your senator, ask to speak to the person in charge of foreign policy. Very few people do this. <laughs> like very few people. Lots of people call Congress all day. All day. Uh, most of them are somewhat crazy. Um, but if you call and you are very polite and you ask to talk to the right person who is the staffer in charge of foreign policy, uh, and you follow up if they don't get back to you, um, I guarantee you, you will eventually, uh, get to talk to the staffer in charge of foreign policy. And if you're very nice about it, you tell them why you're concerned about what's happening in Myanmar and you give them something that for them is actually a fairly low ask. Like there is bipartisan uh, support for the democracy movement, but what there isn't is like the political will to do anything. So calls in this sense can be really, really impactful. Like when I worked at U S campaign for Burma, uh, we literally got our legislation had uh, 63 co-sponsors in the Senate. For those of you who know how the American Senate works, there's only 100 senators and uh, 60 is a veto-proof majority of votes. So we had a veto-proof majority of people co-sponsoring the bill, which basically meant it was going to pass even before it was voted on. And even if the president happened to disagree with it, he couldn't veto it. Um, so it's huge. Like, And the way we were able to do that is uh, really it was just like a few people in every state who were trained up how to call Congress and do it in like a smart, patient way um, that got all these senators. You know, it was a, the, the bill was sponsored by Dianne Feinstein, sort of a liberal Democrat, and uh, Mitch McConnell, who's a sort of 
conservative uh, head of the Republican caucus. Um, so this is it's re and really like political will matters a lot here. So I've been spending a lot of time just trying to encourage people to call their member of Congress. If you're listening, call your member of Congress, tell them to support the uh, the Burma Act being written by Senator Cardin. I'm going to say one other thing. Um, that act has almost everything that the movement wants in it. It has uh, sanctions on oil and gas. It has um, you know, calls for more humanitarian support, support for Burmese civil society, which is CDM, um, all kinds of things. The one thing it doesn't have in it that the movement, I think, uh, really wants is NUG recognition. I strongly think that's because the people who wrote this bill are like human rights activists who like to, quote unquote, hold people accountable, including the NUG, and they don't really like to give them a lot of resources. So uh, they, I think it's just been kind of wrongheaded in the drafting of this bill um, to not include something like a call for NUG recognition. The Congress can't decide that anyway. The State Department has to decide that. But I think you want um, the, the Congress to at least have the tools to be able to pressure the State Department, uh, which you could do through legislation. Um, and so uh, what I've been encouraging everybody to do is call their senator, tell them to support the Burma Act, and then uh, which Senator Cardin is drafting, and then t ask them to put NUG recognition in the bill, which would, again, not be a very big ask. I think it's more has to do with who wrote the bill uh, versus, um, you know, any, like, fact that the Congress wouldn't agree to it. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, let's try and get this passed. Like, we're going to be spending the next couple of months uh, on this. Sorry, that was a long answer. I also think quality uh, quality engagement is more important than quantity. So sometimes I maybe answered too much, but uh, you know, just trying to keep everyone informed. No, that's great because I mean, you're someone coming from this background, so this is a uh, a great opportunity for for us and our listeners to be able to get such a specific and uh, actionable piece of advice on what they could actually do. And I think that it, it also reminds me as hearing this that everyone can ha has different limitations and strengths given who they are, their background, where they are. And that I think one of the things I keep coming back to is in the first month of the protests, you had so many Burmese that were going out on the front lines of the protest day after day. And after some time, people started to realize, well, I'm not really so well suited for being the guy in the front lines. I'm better at doing this organizing or this facilitating or this strategizing and there's there's a certain kind of draw to feeling that you know literally being on the front lines you feel like you're on the edge of the action and you're making sacrifices and risks that you know that you know that that or at least it feels that you're doing something that is the most essential and, and important thing in that moment but um, as things draw out people start to realize that there are other kinds of actions they could be doing given who they are and where they are. And I think whether people, I think people listening could feel a sense of like not being in Myanmar or not having a lot of time in their day or not, uh, not being in, in just being very far removed from everything happening. And this really highlights that 
uh, whoever you are and wherever you're located, there's something that you can do. And that thing that you can do might be something that Burmese cannot do for themselves. That um, in the luxury and the safety of where you are and the freedoms that we might take for granted, that there are things that we can do that are just, if not more valuable than someone in the middle of the struggle, that they're, they're just simply not from where they're at. They, they, they're not able to do what, what we can from the safety of our homes. So, you know, really to reinforce among listeners just uh, how active one can be. And as I think you really, uh, really want to emphasize what you said, that it's not about quantity so much as quality. So it's not about, you know, doing things from morning to night or feeling guilty that you're not doing enough. It's about what whatever action one is deciding to do that that whatever the size of it, whatever the frequency, those things count. Everything counts. And from, um, you know, just picking up the phone uh, and calling, if you're an American citizen, calling your local representative, um, trying to talk to the correct person as you advised, calling back, taking notes. This is something you're just talking about a half dozen calls over a couple week period that could uh, certainly one, one single call could uh, could could be re- um, discussed and reported within that office. And, you know, you're talking about more calls and it's going to have a bigger impact. And so, you know, these are just important things for all of us to keep in mind about all that we're able to do. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, and I would even say, like, a, you know, use the word American citizen. Like, if you, you don't have to be a citizen. If you live in the United States, like the U.S. Congress represents you, it doesn't matter if you're a student here for a, a master's degree or you're a refugee or you're undocumented or the uh what they want to know is that you live in their state really that's that's the criteria um and uh and because i encounter this a lot with you know burmese refugees like uh um who, who are hesitant to call but i i say no like you're you're here this is your home like the future of the state of maryland matters to you and to some extent, you know, like the representative also, they they represent you. They're there to represent the state of Maryland. We have territorial representation in the United States. So, um, the uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I've really spent a lot of time encouraging people to call, and then uh, a lot of it's just a confidence game, you know, like like the members of Congress really and their staff really do want to hear authentic stories of the people who live in their states and districts um and uh and and what matters to those people um so so just a lot of things people don't think about like if you're a chin refugee and you go to a a chin baptist church with you know a few hundred people um that's an important voting block for the for the member um and and they'll they'll to some extent you're doing that member a favor by by outreaching to them uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I really can't stress it enough. There's a lot that can be done. And I, and I like what you said about, um, you know, us all having different roles and, uh, and, and quality mattering. Um, and, uh, you know, not that, that people should be discouraged if they produce something that's not of quality, you know, but, but that, uh, you know, it's something to strive for at least. Mm. Yeah. So I want to close with uh, asking you something about your personal experience in relation with the country or the people. So much of this conversation has been more about ideas and movements and your study. And so I think it'd be nice to close with something of the personal, if there's uh, any personal anecdote or, um, or, or memory or something 
that uh, ties you that that can illustrate to listeners why personally, not in terms of some of these ideas or theories, but personally what for so many years and decades has tied your life into this Southeast Asian country? Oh, yeah. That's a really profound question. I mean... The, at first, it was that it, it fit into this this international movement uh, the, the, that I had joined and you know wanted to be part of. And what's kept me coming back is like the, and I, I feel like this is a little cheesy to say, but it's like the the fighting spirit of the people. It's just like it's it's amazing. Um, you know, and, and I also want to say, like, you know, whenever I show up in the, the Burmese community in Maryland, I get fed very well. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, it, it's like, I sort of, like, politically reject the idea of sort of, like, an essence of, like, Burmese society or something like that, right? Because, like you said, it's dynamic, like any other society, and it's got its, like, you know, ups and downs, and, and uh, and to some extent, you know, it, it just happened to be what I happened upon. Um, but it can't simply be that, right? Because, like, I happened upon a lot of things as a college student. Um, it, it's just, it's really, there's a piece of my heart that it occupies. And, and, I can't, and it's hard for me to pin down exactly why. I mean, like, I feel like it's something I'm just very thankful for that I, that it's, uh, been such a big part of my life. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's very special to me. Um, and in a way that's very hard for me to articulate exactly why. Mm, well, that certainly seems evident with everything you've been doing. And thanks so much for coming on here and just talking about um, some of these topics, going into some detail and depth that uh, I think will be really uh, ideas that people can take away and can learn more about um, not only what they can do, but understanding the different aspects of the movement in different ways. So, uh, and thank you also just for your continued advocacy and so much that you're doing, um, how involved you are with, uh, with some of these more details that many of us can't quite understand or grasp that your educational career has given you the tools to be able to do and to use them in this way. So thanks so much for all of that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate hearing that. And uh, yeah, I know I love this, this podcast. So thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this show. I understand that this is an enormously difficult time for many people these days, myself included, and just the mere fact of staying informed is helping to keep a focus on this pertinent issue. And the only way that we can do our job of continuing to provide this content at this very critical time is through the support of generous donors, listeners like yourselves. So if you found this episode of value and would like to see more shows like this on the current crisis, please consider making a donation to support our efforts. Either monthly pledges or one-time donations are fully appreciated, and all funds go immediately to the production of more episodes like this one. Thank you deeply in advance, and best wishes at this time. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are resisting the military coup, we welcome your contribution. 
in any form, currency, or transfer method. Every cent goes immediately and directly to funding those local communities who need it most. Donations go to support such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, families of deceased victims, and the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies. Or if you prefer, you can earmark your donation to go directly to the guest you just heard on today's show. In order to facilitate this donation work, we have registered a new nonprofit called Better Burma for this express purpose. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is now directed to this fund. Alternatively, you can visit our new Better Burma website, which is betterburma.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause, and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at In all cases, that's Better Burma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration. listening to the Insight Myanmar podcast. We'd appreciate it very much if you could rate, review, and or share this podcast. Every little bit of feedback helps. You can also subscribe to the Insight Myanmar podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. If you can't find our feed on your podcast player, please just let us know and we'll ensure it can be offered there in the future. Also, make sure to check out our website for a list of our complete episodes, including additional text, videos, and other information available at insightmyanmar.org. And I also invite you to take a look at our new nonprofit organization at betterburma.org. There was certainly a lot to talk about in this episode, and we'd like to encourage listeners to keep the discussion going. Make a post, request specific questions, and join in on discussions currently going on on the Insight Myanmar podcast Facebook group. You're also most welcome to follow our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts by the same name. If you're not on social media, feel free to message us directly at info at insightmyanmar.org. Or if you'd like to start up a discussion group on another platform, let us know and we can share that form here. Finally, we're open to suggestions about guests or topics for future episodes. So if you have someone or something in mind, please do be in touch. We would like to take this time to thank everyone who made this podcast possible. Currently, our team consists of two sound engineers, Mike Bink and Martin Combs. There's, of course, Zach Hessler, content collaborator and part-time co-host. Ken Pransky helps with editing. And a special Mongolian volunteer who is asked to remain anonymous does our social media templates. 
In light of the ongoing crisis in Myanmar, a number of volunteers have stepped in to lend a hand as well, and so we'd like to take this time to appreciate their effort in our time of need. And we're always on the lookout for more volunteers during this critical time, so if you'd like to contribute, definitely let us know. We'd also like to thank everyone who has assisted us in arranging for the guests we've interviewed so far. And of course, we send a big thank you to the guests themselves for agreeing to come on and share such personal, powerful stories. Finally, we're immensely grateful for the donors who made this entire thing possible. We want to remind our listeners that the opinions expressed by our guests are their own and don't necessarily reflect the host or other podcast contributors. Please also note that as we are mainly a volunteer team, we do not have the capacity to fact check our guest interviews. By virtue of being invited on our show, there's a trust that they will be truthful and not misrepresent themselves or others. If you have any concerns about the statements made on this or other shows, please contact us. This recording is the exclusive right of Insight Myanmar podcast and may not be used without the expressed written permission of the podcast owner, which includes video, audio, written transcripts, or excerpts of any episodes. Also not meant to be used for commercial purposes. On the other hand, we're very open to collaboration, so if you have a particular idea in mind for sharing any of our podcasts or podcast-related information, please feel free to contact us with your proposal. If you would like to support our mission, we welcome your contribution. During this time of crisis, all donations now go towards supporting the protest movement in Myanmar through our new nonprofit, Better Burma. You may give by searching Better Burma on PayPal, Venmo, Cash App, GoFundMe, and Patreon, as well as via credit card at betterburma.org donation. You can also give right on our Insight Myanmar website, as all donations given there are directed towards the same fund. And with that, we're off to work on the next show, so see you next episode. Yeah.